It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. We are also launching a Meet the Candidates series, and we're going to speak to all of the candidates who are running for president over the course of the election year. And I'm really pleased to be joined today by Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek, it's great to have you with us today. Good to be on, Martha. You're also, for now, joined by my son, Arjun, who's sitting on my lap. He is uh, one year old, but uh, it's hi, Arjun. Great to have you with us. <laughs> he's got a pacifier in his mouth. <laughs> All right. So, um, you know what? I actually want to start there. I, I do want to talk to you about the new polls that came out, which are very interesting for you. But I always like to start these conversations on the untold story by getting a little bit of your untold story. And not everyone is familiar with your background. So tell us a little bit about, you know, where you grew up and um, where you went to school and how you met your wife. And you're the youngest candidate at at 37 years old. I am, I guess. People have pointed that out. Um, So (laughs) I think about my story is, the way I think about it is I have, I've really lived the American dream, Martha, and I'm so grateful for it. My parents came to this country with almost no money 40 years ago. I've gone on to found multi-billion dollar companies. One of them is a biotech company that developed life-saving medicines, including one life-saving therapy for kids. Another that was an asset management firm called Strive that competes against BlackRock and Vanguard and other ESG promoting firms. But that's been my story. And I did it because in part, and this relates to a lot of my perspectives as you know, potentially our next president, is I did it because I had the ultimate privilege. I did not grow up in money, but the privilege that I had was two parents in the house and a focus on education and instilled in me a faith, faith in God. And it was an important part of our upbringing. And I just think that that privilege is something that every American child should have the opportunity to enjoy. And I think that there's things that we do in our culture that make that more difficult than it needs to be. But I went to a relatively poor public school through eighth grade. I know junior high school, it was not a particularly academically oriented school. It was, you know, majority minority school, uh, certainly very economically diverse, including challenged backgrounds of students. But I ended up going to St. X. It was uh, St. Xavier. It was a high school in Cincinnati where I was the lone, uh, one of the few non-Catholic kids in a Catholic high school. But it was a great experience for me. Strong moral education as well, which was, I think, something that has influenced my views on education in this country as well. I went to Harvard for college, thought I was going to be a biologist, ended up getting into the world of biotech investing after I graduated. And uh, oh, here's a little guy making, making, <laughs> getting a little vocal on that. He, maybe he likes biotech investing, too. <laughs> and, you know, I, I noticed some inefficiencies in the world of biotech and pharma that led me to you know, create the first company that I built, which was a company that was focused on developing medicines in areas that pharma had traditionally ignored. Big pharma is a bureaucratic industry. There's a lot not to love about it. 
But as an entrepreneur, I think that that created for me an opportunity to actually do it differently. And so, you know, I ended up developing medicines in the area that pharma had ignored. Several of them, five of them are FDA approved products today. Met my wife along the way. I was in law school shortly before starting the company. Uh, She was in medical school. We were literally next door neighbors. And so she has been the person in my life who has given me the foundation of strength. I've always been somebody who reaches for contrarian ideas, but I do think you're able to jump higher, to leap further if you're doing it from a stable footing. And I think that's what my parents gave me in my upbringing. And that's what my wife gives me in the family life we lead today. Your wife is um, is a surgeon, right? She is. And uh, a professor at Ohio State University. So your parents, you said they came here 40 years ago. They came from India? They did. And that's what about right. her parents? Where is she? Where? What's her background? Her parents were immigrants from India as well. And we were next door neighbors actually at Yale when, when I was in law school and she was in med school. And there was, you know, I think a lot of commonality. Was that, was that arranged by your families? It was... It, <laughs> It was arranged by fate, I would say, <laughs> is, is, is the way we that think about it. That was lucky. No, that's a, it's, yeah, it's a it wonderful was, story. How lucky. many children do you do you have? We have two sons, Arjun, uh, who just crawled out of the room, actually. Okay. And uh, Arjun just turned one on July 5th. It's funny, Apoorva, my wife, went into labor on July 4th last year. We were at a July 4th parade. And by the end of that parade, uh, that afternoon, we were in, in the hospital. She was in labor. He was born on July 5th. So he just had his first birthday. And my older son, Karthik, he'll be coming with me to Iowa. He's three and a half years old. And uh, by the way, it's quite. he seems to be quite enjoying the campaign trail, actually. Uh, his favorite part is the bus that I travels bet. across the country. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about some of this new polling, because you You've been working hard on the campaign trail and you do a lot of appearances. I think you're one of the most energetic uh, campaigners that we see out there. And this new poll found that uh, 49%, this is an Echelon Insights poll, June 26 to 29, released last week, found that 49% of the respondents say that they favor the former president, Donald Trump, 16% DeSantis, and 10% Vivek Ramaswamy. So that puts you third in the race in Iowa. And Iowa obviously is the first big contest. So how do you feel about the fact that you're, you're now breaking into double digits when you've got people like the former vice president, Mike Pence, former candidate and governor, Chris Christie, former UN ambassador, Nikki Haley, all behind you in this particular poll? Well, I uh, feel felt good about it, <laughs> is, is the short answer, that we're doing better than we expected this early on. Our entire strategy is to be patient, right? This is going to take a long time to introduce myself to the country. I'm less known than the other candidates in this race. And so I went into this eyes wide open. We're going in with the intention of winning this, but patiently, not just bursting onto the scene and expecting everyone to convert immediately. And yet, I think in many of the national polls recently, that one's certainly uh, you know one that had me in double digits. But even in some of the ones where I'm in single digits, I'm apparently a clear third place in many of the recent national polls. If I'm not mistaken, I think the Fox one might have been one of them as well. There have been several others since then. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a good thing. But on the other hand, we're not resting on our laurels. As I shared with you before, hard work has been a formula for success for me in academics, in business. It's what my parents instilled in me. So now that we're on a political journey, that doesn't change the calculus either. We're yes, certainly putting in the work, but I think that people are 
more importantly, I think responding to a message that maybe a little bit different than than some of the other candidates who I respect, by the way, immensely in this race, who are focused really, as I have been, by the way, Martha, too, for years on identifying the problems in our culture. But I think now's our moment as a movement to level up. Too long, I think we have been running from something. I think now is our moment to actually start running to something, to our vision of what it means to be an American. And you're right, as the young person in this race, I think I am uniquely suited to reach the next generation. It's not just the polling that we're seeing, Martha. We're also seeing a surge in donations, in just unique, in small donations, but numbers of donations. We've crossed now 65,000 plus unique donors. I never had a donor in my life. I never had donor lists that we started this campaign with. I know there's been a lot of controversy around the 40,000 unique donors. Yeah, donor I wanted to threat. ask you about that. So, yeah, so have you reached in the, the 20 state threshold that you need to have representative from in those uh, in those unique voters from 20 different states as part of that? 40, oh, we shattered that. Yeah, I mean, this was months ago, mm-hmm. actually, we hit that. And now we're at 65,000. And I'm humbled by this, frankly. I mean, I think there are many other established candidates that haven't yet hit that 40,000 threshold. Yeah, that's true. In the RNC about whether that threshold was set too high. I'm a first time candidate. I had no idea how to do this. Right. I'll I'll take a selfie video and post it on Twitter. And those tend to be our successful ways of actually attracting voters, which says that people are drawn to this message, which is so humbling and inspiring and motivating to me as a candidate. It lifts me up. And one of the funny facts we're seeing is I can take these numbers as approximate, Martha. I haven't checked them as of like, you know, last in the last few days or anything. But ballpark, what we're seeing is around 30 percent of those donors are first time ever donors Interesting. to the Republican yeah. Party of any kind to a Republican. And, and usually in a candidate, at least my campaign team tells me that it's normally two to five percent is what that figure normally is. And so it says something different's going on here. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, I I just read off those numbers. And as you say, there are some other similar polls. Um, What we're generally seeing across the board is Trump holding around in the 50 percent range for Republican voters. That's obviously a huge advantage over everyone else. We're also seeing uh, that DeSantis uh, has not been accelerating. In fact, he's been declining in some of these polls. This one, as I said, in Iowa, where he's also working very hard, um, he's there now and and will be appearing this weekend, which it sounds like you will as well, at these big Iowa events this weekend, 16%. So, you know, I guess the first person that you have to continue to leech from if you're going to have a hope in winning this nomination is Donald Trump. And I know you've been supportive of a lot of his, of what he said, but what's your strategy? How are you going to change those numbers away from him and towards you? Well, it's a long sales cycle, Martha. And, and you know, I'm a little bit ahead of where Trump was at a comparable time in 2015. And I think I'm going to do it in some ways similarly to how he did it as an outsider. I do think you get to be an outsider once, though, and I'm the outsider in this race. And and one of the things that I see across the country is that people are hungry for taking many elements of the America First agenda to the next level. But I think people are also hungry for national unity. I think there are a lot of candidates in this race, Martha, who can win maybe by a 50.1 margin against Biden. I think I'm the only candidate in this race that can actually deliver a landslide margin in this election. And I think that's going to matter to people when the rubber hits the road in later stages. Why do you say that? Well, I I don't even talk about Republicans and Democrats, really. I think that distinction doesn't matter to me. You see that in the donor base, for example, that we're getting, right? 
30% of our donors are outside, our first time ever to the Republican Party. That's unheard of. We're bringing young people along in this movement that otherwise would have never thought that they could even imagine voting for a Republican or volunteering for us and donating to us. And so I think that one of the things I'm doing differently is I am showing up in places where Republicans traditionally don't. We went to the south side of Chicago. We went to Kensington in Philadelphia, where even Democrats don't show up. Maybe even some police officers don't show up. I go to college campuses across this country. We had a protester at an event, you know, a couple nights ago who was security was in the process of throwing out. I said, bring her back in. Let her speak. Mm. We ended up having an interesting and honest. Where was that? That was in Iowa, actually, Mm -hmm. southeast Iowa. And, you know, you could send you you could check out a video of it. It was it was I, I found it heartwarming. Actually, it was interesting. Uh, you know, it's a it's a you know long story, but better just to see the video. But I yeah. think that there are possibilities for national unity that are hiding in plain sight. And I do think that most of us in the America First movement are hungry for one nation and not two. And you know, on the politics of it, look, I'm enjoying this level of support when many people in this country still don't know who I am. <laughs> I'm hoping the debate stage and other moments through the course of this campaign will provide an occasion, and I'm being patient about that. But among the other major candidates, my name ID is still amongst the lowest. And so I think that's very promising for as people learn about our message, they're converting. Many people don't yet know who I am, and that's okay because we're still very early in this race. But I think that I'm taking the America First agenda to the next level further than Trump did, doing it based on first principles and moral authority, not just vengeance and grievance. That allows us to go further. And I think for many people even who do solidly support Trump, I think they will recognize the truth, which is that even when he's saying the right things, he causes a certain form of unhinged loss of faculties in the people who oppose him in this country, that they just lose it. They go nuts. They go crazy. And I think I'm able to, in many ways, deliver some of the same policies at an even more pronounced scale, but in a way that doesn't have that same effect on people in the country who stopped Trump from effectuating his agenda. And for those in this country who I think are most in our movement, who want to see the actual policy vision of putting this country first implemented, to see it through, to see us go further with it, to unite the country, I think I'm going to be the single candidate, Martha, in this race who's able to do that. But I'm going to make that case patiently and steadily, not trying to you know, spike yeah. the ball early. The Untold Story continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. So do you think, you know, I think a lot of insiders think that if the former president is indicted, even potentially two more times in the Georgia case and in the January 6th case, that that's going to potentially change the dynamic here. I'm not so sure that's true because with the first two indictments, we saw his poll numbers accelerate. And I think that his supporters are very ardent. They're very committed. So what's the catalyst that you see that sort of dethrones his position in these polls? Or do you think that is what it's going to be? No, I don't think so. I, I mean, I'm not a political analyst. So, <laughs> you know, my, my top job is to share who I am and what I believe. And the job of the voters of this country is to decide if that's what they want. But if but you're if running you're gonna, against him and you're running you're against DeSantis yeah. in this environment yeah, right. as the, for the but nomination. Sort of predicting, yeah, but in terms of predicting a single catalyst in that sense, Martha, I'm mm-hmm. not going to okay. I'm not going to 
proffer a specific catalyst in this race. I just think there's a long time between now and the finish line, and I'm confident that voters are hungry for making their choice carefully. And I think that right now, most people still don't yet know fully who I am and what I stand for. But the few who do, or the smaller number who do, are coming over in a way that has even to many people's surprise, even to my surprise, frankly, this early put us in third position in many of these polls. I'm confident that over the course of this race, I think the debate stage will be critical. We're going to have one a month starting in August. Yeah. I think that will be a great opportunity to actually air the different perspectives that we have in the Republican Party on how we deal with a failing economy, how we deal with the politicization of capital markets in our schools, with ending the war in Ukraine. How do we deal with the actual challenges where several people in this race do have different views? I think that's going to be my chance to really steadily. I don't think it's going to be one quantum leap at any moment, but I think steadily it'll be down to me and Trump by the path to Super Tuesday. I'm confident of that. And I think by that point, I will be able to say, listen, I respect a lot of the policies of President Trump, and I do. I mean that earnestly. I've said it very clearly all along. But I am better positioned to go further with that agenda and unite the country on principles and moral foundations. And I think that that'll be a persuasive case to a majority of voters, not only in our primary, but across this country when I'm running against, you know, I suspect it won't be Biden if, if I'm the nominee. I think it'll be someone else. But I think that whoever I'm running against, I believe we have an opportunity to, to deliver a landslide election of the kind that Reagan did in 1980. That's what I believe I'm going to deliver in 2024. You know, it's interesting that you and I want to ask you about that in a moment. I know we're talking a lot of the political dynamics here, but I think it's, you know, that this is the process, right? There's one winner on each side for the nomination. And um, you and I have talked in the past a lot about your feelings about American culture, American strength and your positive vision for the country, which I think is clearly one of the things that has resonated with people. And it's why you're seeing the kind of support that you're seeing out there. It's interesting to me as someone who does watch all of this and analyze it, that you're six points away from from DeSantis. Do you have any thoughts on why this governor from Florida, who's extremely popular in his home state, has not caught on the way that a lot of Republicans and Americans thought he probably would? So, look, I think, as I said, I'm, you know, not an armchair political analyst. I'm here as a a person who's sharing my vision for the country and doing it authentically and leaving it to the voters to speak their minds. But I'll give you my two cents, which is just the same observation that that you or others could make, which is that this happens nearly every cycle, right? Mm -hmm. Was it Scott Walker uh, yep. last time around? Absolutely. That, you know, that was the dynamic heading into the first debate. Trump was a candidate as an outsider who was literally viewed as I think the word that came up over and over again was unserious. I heard that word in the first three months of my candidacy as well. You know, it irritated me a little bit, but I laughed at it as well because we've seen this movie every time. Right. And you know, I think that there is something about our nature when it comes to a presidential election, when it comes to setting a vision for this country where voters actually care about what we're running to. The rearview mirror of saying, here's what I accomplished. I think that's important if you're running for a administration position or an administrative position or an execution-oriented position. And I think that's what Governor DeSantis excelled at in Florida. I think he was a good executor in many respects. And that's why I respect him. And I respect many great governors across this country. I mean, Christy Nome, who led the way on her policies of 
resisting lockdowns. I respect her for paving that way. And I respect Governor DeSantis for for seeing that vision and then following it and executing that and emulating that in Florida. I think there are other governors, Kim Reynolds, who I just met with in, in Iowa. Many times when I travel, there's some great governors who are executors in this country. And Ron DeSantis has been one among many good examples of a governor who executes well on a on a narrow mandate. But I think when it comes to the level of who's going to be the president, I mean, Scott Walker did that. He was he was a good executor as a governor. But I think resting on those accomplishments, I think, matters less when we think about who we really are as Americans. I mean, that's the question on the table right now. What is our national identity? What does it mean to be a citizen of this country? We have to answer that question first if we're going to revive national pride, revive a flailing economy, revive our moral standing on the global stage to stand up to an enemy, communist China, that we depend on for our modern way of life, having to make difficult trade-offs of how we wean ourselves off of that relationship, that takes vision of where we are going. It takes a vision of who we are as a people. And I think that my accomplishments in business or somebody else's accomplishments as a governor, those aren't the reasons why we're gonna be elected. I think we're gonna be elected on the basis of our vision. And, And I think that that may be part of the answer to your question. It was very similar to the answer to what happened to Scott Walker last time around, I think is part of what we may be seeing playing out this time around again. So I want to ask you about two policy areas before we wrap up here specifically. And and one of them, when you talk about your own education and um, your parents instilling in you motivation and desire for excellence, um, we see the opposite of that happening in the country right now. And even before COVID, we had abysmal scores for American students. And there's lots of evidence that we've just been pushing kids through who can't read, allowing them to graduate from eighth grade in some cases without even being able to read. So when you talk to parents around the country and they say, what is your plan? Because my child is now four and a half months behind in math and reading. And I think that's probably an optimistic assessment. Um, So if you were president, what would you do from the national level, from the White House, to make sure that the kids in this country get up to speed? Yeah. So look, first, I think education should absolutely be a local issue that the federal government more or less impedes. But here's what I've set out as my vision for education policy, is that first, I would shut down the U.S. Department of Education, which should not exist, and use the funds spent by that department, 80 plus billion dollars, to actually give it back to the people via the states. But in order to get that money, those states have to adopt school choice programs. So you have to fund the underfunded school choice deficits. You have to have school choice in the first place. I think a big part of what I'll also require is that I want those public schools to be able to compete with the private and charter schools, which means that they should write their contracts in the same way that I'll make sure the federal employee contracts are written without union protections against collective bargaining and the teachers unions. Now we have true competition, true choice. I think if you teach it in the classroom, you should put it on the internet, give transparency and choice to parents. That's how you actually hold those schools accountable for achievement. That opens the way for merit-based pay for teachers. Teachers can earn more than they do now if they're actually supporting the achievement of their students. I also think that we should take this to the next level and an idea that I've supported. I think I'm the only one who's in the current field supported this. It's viewed by some as a... Uh, very forward, I'll put it kindly, it's the way some people say it's a radical idea, I, I call it forward thinking, but I think it's it's going to work, is 
When a parent leaves a public school that's spending a lot of money, there's an interesting inverse correlation between the public schools that spend more per student and actual results that's in this country. Sure. Yep. It's perverse. And so what I say is if they're leaving, a, say, in Chicago, where there's $40,000 per student per year, but in the periphery of Chicago, I mean, 20 miles away, 15 miles away, fifteen dollars to $20,000 per student per month, parents get to take half that money with them. That goes into actually that same educational saving account of the students. That's what part of what, how school choice is built is on ESAs. Well, if you assume normal investment assumptions there, that's a $200,000, $300,000 graduation gift mm. waiting for that kid when they graduate high school. You tell me what's a better use of money, a bureaucracy at the local level or actual money in the hands of the students who's then empowered to go after either trade school or secondary education, post-secondary education. That's my vision for educational reform in this country that puts the achievement of our students first rather than employment opportunities for bureaucratic teacher industrial complex. Okay, Um, we'll get more into that as we move along. But I I also want to ask you about Ukraine, because obviously the president's uh, meetings in Lithuania this week, very much front and center. Finland entering NATO. Sweden also will be entering NATO. Uh, But the president said that uh, although he sees a path in the future, he expects Ukraine to be brought into NATO. Uh, It can't happen now in the middle of this war. Are you in favor of Ukraine being included in NATO? I am not. I am dead set opposed to it. I think it would be a disastrous idea, certainly in the middle of a hot conflict to bring Ukraine into NATO. But to the contrary, I actually think that committing that Ukraine will never be admitted to NATO can be part of negotiating a peace deal with Putin, which accomplishes a more important objective for the United States, which is pulling Russia out of its military alliance with China. That is the top threat that the U.S. faces today, the China-Russia military alliance, the largest nuclear stockpile in the world and hypersonic missile capabilities in Russia's hands, combined with the largest naval capacity in China's hands, not to mention an economy that we depend on for our modern way of life. That's the real threat we face. Martha, it shocks me that nobody in either party is really talking about this with clarity. And to me, one of my objectives as U.S. president is to pull that alliance apart. And that's also part of how we deter Xi Jinping from going after Taiwan, because part of Xi Jinping's bet is that the U.S. won't want to go to war with two allied nuclear superpowers at the same time. But if they are no longer allied, that will deter Xi from going after Taiwan while also avoiding war with China. And I think that that's part of a broader, more expansive foreign policy vision, Martha. But I think that's part of what I'm bringing to the table is it's not just a narrow tit for tat in Ukraine. I have a comprehensive foreign policy vision that really involves prioritizing American interests, but not just through sort of a lazy strategy of disengagement. It's how we actually engage and disengage that actually matters. Okay, so if you don't allow Ukraine to enter NATO, and as you say, you pull the alliance apart, you're talking about pulling the alliance apart between Russia and China. You're not talking about dismantling the other existing part of NATO. No, 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 I'm talking about negotiating a, a, a dismantling of the alliance between China and Russia. Got it. So... You know, if if Ukraine is not allowed to join and you say to them, look, we've been very generous to you, we've helped you to, you know, continue to fight Russia in a strong way with all the weapons that we've sent you, but you can't be in the alliance. What keeps Russia from continuing to move into Ukraine? And do you care if they do that? Do do you see that as something that puts them right at the door of all of these NATO countries eventually? So this would be the terms of the treaty of the of the peace deal that I would do with Russia is that actually we would require that 
Putin not only exit his military alliance with Russia, but also remove nuclear weapons from Kaliningrad, the region that borders Poland, remove the Russian military presence from the West, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela. So I think that that's an important part of the deal. And if Putin reneges, then we and by the way, part of this deal would also reopen some economic relations with Russia. If Putin reneges, we'd immediately institute a maximum pressure campaign. And we would immediately also revisit our own commitment to say that Ukraine would not join NATO. So I think Putin would have little reason to renege because he doesn't enjoy being Xi Jinping's little brother in that relationship right now, Martha. And I think if we give him the terms that I'm talking about here, he would not only have no reason to renege, but in many ways, we would actually have even greater leverage over him if he did. And so I don't trust Putin, but I do trust him to follow his self-interest. And the fact is, he doesn't trust us, but I think he can follow, trust us to follow our self-interest too. But those are the principles we're going to have to bring to the table, clear principles of what's at stake for each side, raw self-interest that actually gets us to a peace deal that I'm confident we'll be able to negotiate. Okay, last question. Um, there are a couple of players in this field uh, who are, well, there's one, Cornell West is is with the Green Party. There's discussion about a no labels candidate as well. Um, you have Robert Kennedy Jr. getting a lot of attention um, for a lot of what he's talking about. He's running as a Democrat right now, but a lot of people think he could potentially end up being an independent as well. How does that impact the race in your mind? I think too early to say. And and frankly, Martha, at this point, I'm I'm actually more, most focused on getting my message out there. I think that we're going to win in a landslide election uh, because I think the power of our message that rises beyond partisanship, I think, will dilute a lot of that to irrelevance. But, um, you know, as I said, I respect others who are bucking the traditional orthodoxy and entering as outsiders, too. I think that's good for our system. And so I applaud them for doing it. But if you ask me today, I don't think it's going to have a tremendous impact on the ultimate outcome. Vivek Ramaswamy, thank you very much. Always good to talk to you and look forward to continuing our conversation. And we look forward to seeing you on the debate stage on August 23rd in Milwaukee. Looking forward to it, Martha. You've been listening to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Make sure to rate and review. For more podcasts, go to foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.